Olympic medalist and Tour de France podium finisher, Coach Bobby Julik, and Outskirts visionary, Gus Morton, invite you to put your socks on. From insightful analysis into our sport's most iconic races and racers to entertaining, educational, and actionable advice, Fizzo is an illuminating deep dive into the art and science of bike racing. Be prepared to put your socks on. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Put Your Socks On. My name is Bobby Julik. And as always, I'm here with Gus Morton. Gus, what a stage, huh? Man, I uh, I was having a little bit of a nap on the couch and, uh, and 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 set an alarm to make sure I was awake by 70k's to go, mainly out of guilt because I thought that you know I better at least at least watch the last 70. And sure enough, when I opened my eyes, it was uh, it was all going down. So yeah, what what should have been a routine stage turned into anything but uh, fantastic. Before we get into that, let's just uh, let's just talk some overnight developments. A couple of things uh, went on overnight. Nibali, we've seen, lost a bit of time in the last couple of days, and uh, and he became very vocal overnight at the uh, as he calls them the armchair critics who sit on their couch and drink Coca Cola and uh, and tweet criticisms. So uh, he was obviously receiving um, a fair bit of criticism from the. Uh, the Italian fans, um, apparently after his coach, I didn't see this, but apparently his coach said that uh, his coach, Paolo Slongo, said uh, he he had given up mentally rather than physically. <laughs> and there were some, like, some pretty gnarly attacks on him. But uh, I wanted to ask you, I mean, you know, mental fatigue, physical fatigue, at the end of the day, they're both arbitrary, right? He was dropped. If you dropped, you dropped. So, you know, mental fatigue, it's obviously a real thing. Oh, 100%. I'd say, gosh, sometimes this sport is close to 70% mental. And when you come out of the Giro going for it as hard as he did at his age, it's super hard to just kick back into another grand tour. So absolutely that mental and emotional fatigue weighs on you. Because when you're not fresh and you're not feeling good, that gets inside your head. And it's one of the worst things. You could still be producing good numbers. But if you don't have that mental ability to deal with that workload, man, it, it, it's lights out. And I, I feel sorry for, for guys when, when their coach kind of hits them in the teeth with something like that. Because, yes, we, we prescribe. They have to execute. And we don't know every single thing that's going on at home, off the bike. All we see is the data that, that is uploaded to us every day or the, the certain conversations that we have. So I think, you know, that's, that's probably not the best thing to say to one of your riders um, because we don't know what they're feeling. And these guys are not machines they're not robots they're human beings and you have to think about that and that's exactly it right and the other thing too i think when uh that's really tough to deal with and you can't you know you can pretend that you've got a thick skin and, and some people do but when your fans turn on you like that or you, you you cop criticism and you're in a vulnerable moment if you you know you think about where nibble is at right he he'd been hoping for more and and then you know opens up his phone to receive hundreds of messages saying <laughs> you know you should try a bit harder that's gonna be yeah. tough were you ever were you ever in that position did you ever get like shit canned by by a fans or, or or press or anyone like that? Oh, I'm I'm sure I did, but you know, I was riding at a time when we didn't have all this social media or as much of it. 
And I just recently got on social media and I suck at it. So I, <laughs> I don't really pay attention to that much stuff at all. But I, I kind of had to catch myself the other day commenting like, like they said, that armchair quarterback. Because, mm-hmm. of course, as fans, we want to see full-on racing all the time. And I, I was, I remember that back in the day of, yeah, you just can't do it. You can't be switched on 24 seven. There's going to be some stages that are more exciting than others. And it's easy for us to say, ah, you know, they're taking it easy, but I guarantee there's no one in the Tour de France that's taking it easy. They're, they're exhausted. Yeah. I do remember thinking that a lot of the time when I was racing and you're, and you're kind of struggling on your climb and you're or like, there's a bit of crosswind, you know, like we saw today and you're like, oh, geez, I hope someone doesn't put it in the gutter. I hope we just ride this stage and nothing happens. Um, but as a fan, you're just like, do something, someone do something. Um, move on. I think it's worth a quick note. Um, we, we, we missed it yesterday, but Damaki uh, is, is now out of the race after uh, a pretty serious accident. Talk about that, Bobby. Yeah, it was confirmed today that he broke his collarbone, a rib, had lung contusions, all sorts of just nasty stuff from that crash. And the the guy that, that caused that crash, Villanos, from AG2R, actually said it was his fault and apologized mm-hmm. and was actually very shaken after that because he saw DeMarkey laying in a position that, that he could tell he was hurt. So th- it just goes to show you this this sport is so brutal. One day you're in the breakaway going for the win, maybe with your hands up in the air, and the next day you're in the hospital. Uh, how do you deal with that mentally? I mean, the ups and downs can just change in a split second in this sport, and that's what makes it one of the hardest sports in the world, in my opinion. Absolutely, and, and it's the second time in as many days that we've seen a rider apologize for making a mistake and, and causing another rider to crash. Woods, the day earlier... Um, with Thomas, which fortunately, I mean, unfortunately for Woods, it was catastrophic for his Tour de France, but, uh, but for Thomas, he was able to get back in. It just shows you as well, these riders, they're empathetic to each other and they're sympathetic, um, but they're also obviously on the knife's edge. They're constantly on the edge and, and, and one small mistake, which we're seeing the pressure is, is causing them to, to have can be like life-threatening potentially. Um, so, yeah, so hopefully we don't see any more serious accidents like that and uh, we wish Demaki a speedy recovery. Before we get on with the rest of the show, Bobby, should we, uh, let's hear from our sponsors. Okay, it's time for today's daily trivia question. I think this is a pretty easy one, so even I can get it. Today is marked as a stage for the sprinter with crucial green jersey points available. How many times has Peter Sagan won the green jersey? Go to roadid.com slash TDF to answer this question and score a chance to win today's daily prize, which is a pair of Look Special Edition Tour de France pedals. One lucky winner will even take home a $10,000 BMC shopping spree. Again, that's roadid.com slash TDF. And uh, let's talk about today's stage, Bobby, uh, from St. Flower to Albi. 217.5 217.5k plus a seven kilometer neutral another really long stage the second of this year's race it's been a uh, it's been a long first week how uh let's talk about let's 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 talk about how things kicked off and, and how the break went and uh and what the motivations behind putting guys in a break on a day like today are yeah uh today the the break went from the gun um, there was a little bit of drama there when it seemed like Matthews wasn't so happy with the group and he kind of went across and Sagan followed him. And that just, it's interesting to mention, 
you know, how a breakaway is, is formed is so unique. Like every single breakaway is, is kind of decided by the other teams. Like yesterday, it went away and it was actually pretty, pretty easy because there were so many teams represented. There was no team stacking the front. And, you know, teams are already starting to think about Team GC. You're thinking about Mountains points, Young Riders points. And this is just going to get more and more intense as the race gets closer and closer to Paris. Um, one way to look at it is, you know, is there a guy with a clipboard and a velvet rope, <laughs> like, sitting there, like, allowing, okay, you can go, sir. Nope, you can't. You're, get to the back of the line. It's almost like that because it is very select. There, there, there's so many issues that can pop up. Uh, you know, it could be something as much as a, a personal grudge of some rider not wanting to let a rider go into the group. So that breakup, that, that breakaway, that composition of that breakaway is quite unique. But today, I think it was much more like, okay, guys, nobody dangerous go off the front. No two guys from one team because, you know, team general classification is in play if, if you do something like that. And you guys can get up there because we need to get from point A to point B, but we're going to keep you on a short leash. And that's what they did today. It was totally different dynamic than yesterday. Yeah, and we saw um, we saw the Mickey Shah jumping across, the Prey Mantis um, doing a late cross. We saw that yesterday as well, and we kind of touched on a little bit as that being like a team tactic. What do you reckon, like... Were they putting him in there? Were they sort of like, look, we need a guy there because we don't want to have to ride the front? Or, yeah, I mean, were they thinking it was going to go to the line? Like, what do, what's the motivation for doing something like that on a day that seems inevitably a sprint day? That's a good question. I mean, always being in the breakaway in the Tour de France is good. I mean, guys are fighting for contracts. They're they're on TV. They have fans. They want to be in the front. They're feeling good. And Mickey Shar obviously is feeling good. And mm -hmm. he just happened to have that guy standing there with the clipboard and, you know, unclipped the velvet rope and said, okay, go for it. And he was able to join that that group, which which consisted of Anthony Turgis, Tony Gallopan, Odd Christian Eiking, Mads Wirtz. You got to give Mads some props for getting into the yeah. breakaway after, you know, barely missing it the other day. Uh, Nathaniel Berhani, who just hoovered up all the KOM points today, he was, you know, a little bit greedy with that, but he was the only one that had any points. So the other guys were like, you know, okay, that's, that's not that big of a deal. So yeah, that, that breakaway looked like it was gonna, gonna stick until towards the end. But yeah, then there was that sudden change of pace in the group and mm. guys started making each other nervous. And to me, that real standout moment of the stage was when EF went up to the front and tried to put the hammer down. And let me Man. tell you one thing on a stage like today, do you really want to poke the bear? You know, you're already down one guy. TJ Van Garderen is at home in Girona right now. Do you, do you have the team to really make a difference there? And if so, are you really wanting to start that sort of battle that far out. I understand maybe it was windy, but are you the team that should get up there and ride on the front for a couple minutes and just kind of piss everybody off? I, I'm not sure. I'm sure they're second guessing that right now. I was going to say, evidently, the answer to that question is no, because they hit it. Interestingly enough, actually, um, there was a shot that cut to the back of the peloton whilst they were whilst they were splitting it, and they had a guy back there with a with a with a jersey full of bottles. So they were two men down. Um, 
But yeah, evidently no, because then when Ineos came over the top and uh, and quick step and and really put the hammer down, the entire EF team then missed that missed that split that that actual split that that then went on to be uh, devastating for their race. You know, up until thirty seven k to go, uh, it seems like nothing happened in this race, and then all of a sudden the entire Tour de France was flipped on its head. What's the thinking like? I feel like today it was pretty obvious that the wind was going to play a factor. And as you just said, like, why poke the bear? Yeah, the, the mantra or the movie quote that came into my head when watching this on TV was like from Scarface. You know, I, I have a terrible accent, so I'm not going to try to say uh, <laughs> a Tony Montana accent. But you want to play? Okay. You want to play? Okay. Say hello to my little friend. And that's when... <laughs> That's when Dekoinik and, and Ineos got up there and said, okay, we're going to show you how it's done. And man, when that happened, you just better pray that you were in the front. Because once that, once that split happened, like I said, everyone's already tired. Everyone had their guard down. Everyone's like, you know, is, is this really going to happen? And it turned out to be a bad dream for a lot of those guys. It's, it looked like, you know, we had, we had some big favorites caught out and that's the motivation, right? Like no one wants to go and just drill it for 30 or 40 K on the front just for nothing. But when yeah. you see riders like, like Port, like George Bennett, like Full Song, like Pino, like Uran, all in the back, man, that is a recipe for disaster. You know, they're not going to let up until they fall off their bikes. And it, it was a valiant chase, you know, that, that group with some of the favorites, almost made it back up but it seemed like they just threw it all in on that last little riser and when they couldn't close the gap there the wind totally went out of their sails and what happened it was at the end they wound up the gap wound up ballooning to one minute and 40 seconds and here guys are complaining about losing a little bit of time in the team time trial etc etc man you just lost a minute and 40 seconds to the best guys in the tour this just flips the GC totally on its head, and these guys are going to have to wind up trying to make up that that time somewhere else, and it's not going to get any easier. And that's it. Before we move on to our before we move on, I just wanted to make that that interesting point. Right? It seems you know guys recon all year, they train all year, and to 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 take five six seconds on a mountaintop finish. You know, if we look back to to stage six. The time gaps were essentially, I mean, we deemed them neg negligible, right? We said, well, nothing really happened today. Everyone's on even keel. And then today, you know, <laughs> a yeah. few guys found themselves right up shit creek without a paddle. And, uh, yeah. and f f Tour de France potentially over. How do they come back from that? Like Port, uh, Uran, Pinot, Lander, Bennett. Bennett's well, yeah, yeah. not going to be able to yeah. come back. Yeah, poor Landa, that's the absolute worst time to have a mechanical, mm. no doubt. I mean, he wasn't in that group anyway, but it even compounded it worse. I think he lost over two minutes. But let's talk a little bit about the sprint. Yep. Time after time, we've seen Michael Matthews win a sprint when the victory is, is gone already, right? And then time after time, when it's there, and today his team was very well represented. And he's, he just kind of... I don't know if it's a mental block or whatnot, but when the victory's on the line, he seems to tense up. He seems to seize. And, I mean, that's not at all... The, the best part of that finish was seeing Walt van Aert just totally wind that up from at least 300 meters. And Viviani had his wheel. 
And I'm thinking, oh man, here we go. Viviani doesn't even need a lead out. He's got Van Aert just, just giving him an armchair ride to the finish line. But then he couldn't come around him. What amazing power this kid has and what an amazing start to the Tour de France Jumbo Visma has had so far. What is that, four stage wins now? Yeah, four wow. stage wins. Uh, their presence has been almightily felt. And yeah, like that was an uphill finish today and he went from a long way out. So exciting stuff, new kid on the block. And, and as you said, like everything was going for, uh, for Team Sunweb and for Matthews today. He had, he had guys there, they were riding the front. It was a pretty straight run in. And, uh, and unfortunately just couldn't come through with the goods. But that's bike racing and I guess, uh, you know, he gets a rest day tomorrow and maybe he can, uh, he can try again on, on Wednesday. Let's move on. We get our super fan here. He's, uh, he's got a couple of questions. Let's hear from him. It's time for super fan. Hey guys, how's it going? Today I want to talk a little bit about motivation. I read somewhere a little ways back that as a youngster, Mark Cavendish's early power numbers and tests actually weren't incredibly impressive, but that he was hungry and he had this massive drive to win. Bobby, when you're coaching young athletes, what are the characteristics other than their numbers that you look for to tell you that you're dealing with someone special? In a sport that's so quantifiable, talk about this driver hunger to win that seems to separate some of the most talented riders. We often see it in the sprinters, but I'm sure it's evident with all the champions. Super fan. Oh, that's easy. For me, it's work ethic. It all boils down to work ethic. You know, there, there are a lot of talented guys out there that just right out of the blocks are able to win races and be the best. But there's also that, those diamond in the rough sort of guys. And as a junior, um, as a policy, I, I don't really, I've never coached a junior because I think the juniors need to kind of learn on their own, make those mistakes. You don't want to be living as a professional when you're a junior or even even up to 21 22 years old you know i mean a lot of guys are coming into the peloton already you know winning races at 20 22 years old but from that junior young rider perspective i think that having a strong work ethic and really having your life in order and knowing that hey this is just a sport you're not curing cancer here this is this is a sport and you need to be a good human being and not just a robot producing good numbers because that's not going to make you happy. So, yeah, work ethic for me is, is number one. Wise words there, Bobby. That's, uh, yeah, that's, I think, very easy to forget. Uh, good work ethic and, you know, ultimately this is a sport, right? And there is good to come of it, but, uh, but at the end of the day, it's just healthy competition. Let's talk about sprinting. Obviously, we, we, we just touched on it, and, and that's today's theme. The sprint finish today was a fantastic one um, for a number of reasons because, you know, it involved more than just simply the bunch barreling down uh, to the finish line there. It was, uh, yeah, a little more tactical than that. Bobby, I, I mean, first up, like what I think for me I really want to know and, and, and I find really interesting is like all these guys are out there riding their bikes. They're all covering the same distance, yet – you know, and they're all in the same race, yet we have sprinters at one end of the spectrum and, you know, climbers or time trialists, you know, on the other side of the spectrum. What differentiates these guys physiologically and, at like, yeah, from a, from a coach's perspective, what makes these guys so different? I think it just comes down to muscle fiber type. I mean, you have type one or type two and, you know, sprinters have fast twitch muscle fibers. That can definitely be trained, but... 
you know, from a standpoint of genetics, I think you're kind of born with maybe 90%, maybe there's a 10% advantage that you can gain through training. But it's, it's not only the, I think there's two aspects to sprinting. And let me tell you, I'll say this straight up. I can't sprint worth, <laughs> worth a damn. Like if I could max out, have a P max of 1,100 Watts, I think that was the highest I ever saw. These guys could do that sort of thing with, with one leg, but I just didn't have that ex explosive muscle fiber or that really glycolic ATP uh, sort, of, sort of power. And that's what these guys are, are blessed with. And, you know, obviously ha they have to work at it, but it's, it's a symphony. These guys, if it was just an easy sprint, like you just roll around all day on the front and then do a sprint, that's one thing. But you have to factor in the fatigue, the resistance to fatigue. And the trick is getting these guys to the finish line with enough in reserve to really get the maximum out of their sprint. You bring even a guy like Peter Sagan to a sprint when he is absolutely tapped out, he's not going to have the same sprinting ability. So that's the trick of training a sprinter, right, is to allow him to keep his fast twitch muscle fibers, but to get him enough resistant, resistance to that fatigue so that he shows up in that last two or 300 meters, ready to go. No one, no one's fresh as a daisy when they get to the finish of a stage like today, but you need to be as less, as most resistant to the fatigue uh, compared to the other riders. And that's where we see, you know, upsets and sprints happen. There may be by name or by Jersey, you see these guys lining up, but they're not all operating with the same energy at that moment. And how are these guys training differently? Um, you know, when you watch a sprint finish, it, it is very much, as you said, a symphony and there's a lot of key players, right? But when these guys are at home training by themselves, you know, they're not always doing sprint lead outs and, and practicing this, right? How does a guy, I mean, like, how is a sprinter training differently to, you know, maybe his second or third last lead out guy? You know, and how are they, are you coordinating the training? Is it kind of like training a football team? Oh boy, that, that's, that's a lot of questions in one there. Um, <laughs> how, do you, how do you train a sprinter? Well, you know, like I said, I wasn't a sprinter. I wasn't really ever around many sprinters as, as a rider. One of the most, I, I heard back in the day that Cipollini never trained his sprint in, in training. That, that's unbelievable to me. I, I don't understand that. But then I was lucky enough to be around Mark Cavendish. And what I found so interesting with Mark was if it was in December at a training camp or January or June, he would finish every ride with a full out sprint. And I was blown away when he was doing that the first, the first time I saw him. The first day I was just like, oh, he's just, you know, first training camp of the year. He's just a little bit excited. But that, that just goes to his work ethic. Even in December at the first training camp, he's already thinking about his sprint. And that's, there's, like I said, there's a big difference between sprinting when you're fresh and sprinting at the end of a race or an end of a training ride, right? So that, that was probably the most impressive thing. But as far as training for it, there, there's the difference between explosive power and mm -hmm. then that real high leg speed. And Nowadays, you know, with, with the size of the chain rings that these guys can put on, with a lot of the finishes being uphill, there's a mix between the two. You have to have both, right? You have to have that, that explosive power to make that jump, but then you also have to have that, you know, tw 10 to, to 20 seconds at that high power output. So that's where you're working 
totally different systems. And how do these guys get through the Tour de France? Because, you know, like there's some serious mountains there. And, and as we've seen in this first week, uh, even just the, the medium days, you know, it's all about, you know, you, like you said, getting to the finish fresh, but also just picking and choosing your battles. I think like it's pretty easy to kind of discount like, oh yeah, you know, these guys, they're just good on flat stages at the finish, but they still have to get over the mountains, right? They've still obviously got to train a bit in the hills. Yeah, they absolutely do. I mean, you can't get to Paris without getting over all the mountains prior to that. And, you know, that's that's why we they do have to do long, steady efforts up climbs. Not necessarily they have to be with the with the front group, but they have to be able to get over with a the the second or third group or or even in the gruppetto. And it's not easy for these guys. They're a lot bigger, they have a lot different muscle type, and these guys suffer. And you know, we see them winning and having their moment on the podium, you know, kissing the girls and popping the champagne. Unless you're in France, we know that they don't have champagne on the podium Champagne's anymore. Champagne's banned, yeah. But you just got to add up the number of hours. When you look back at the overall GC of where these sprinters finish, they're sometimes doing between three and six hours more because they're losing so much time every day finishing in the Gruppetto. But that's where that that mental focus has to has to comes into play in my opinion they need to really focus on keeping a nice steady effort you know really bombing those descents working together as in a group with that that carrot that hey tomorrow's a sprint day or 3 days from now is a sprint day and you know the roles will be reversed let's uh we've got a a really good interview today lined up with uh, an absolute legend of the sport rod ellingworth um Rod, welcome to Put Your Socks On. Thank you so much for joining us. Good day, guys. How you doing? Hey, hey Rod. How you doing? Hey, for those of you that don't know, Rod Ellingworth was responsible for running the British Cycling Academy, which developed guys like Mark Cavendish, Garrett Thomas, Ian Stannard, Pete Kenna, just to name a few. He was also a huge part in the old... Sky Team, which is now Team Ineos, and he was behind Cavs' plan to win the World Championship. He even wrote a book about it called Project Rainbow. And what a read this is. If you want to see the planning and the forethought that goes into winning a race at that caliber, pick this up. It's a it's a great read. So, Rod, welcome to the show. Cheers, guys. Thank you. As as Gus said, our theme is is sprinting and. I know that you've worked with guys such as Cav and Viviani, Eddie Bosenhagen. You know, those guys are super talented. But what I'm kind of interested in talking about is your opinion. Are sprinters born or can they be trained or developed? I, I, I was listening. It was interesting what you were saying there in, in you know, the rest of the show there. I, I think um, I totally believe that they're born with that talent. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think you're right, Bobby. You, you can train to a certain degree and... You know, everybody can train to get a, a bit faster, but there's only so much you can do. Um, I think the comments on yourself is quite funny, but, you, you know, uh, I think it's true. You've either got one type or you've got the other type. And, and certainly, you know, knowing Mark, knowing Mark as well as uh, I do, you know, he certainly was born with that, um, you know, and, and the actual, when you think what he actually has to train, he, he has to train the other side of the sport far more than he does the sprint side because it, it is just an, a natural game for him, yeah. Yeah, a lot of these guys came off the track. So what sort of training did you have to implement 
to get these guys over the mountains to switch from you know a four minute event or a 30 minute event on the track to these grand stages in the tour de france and then having that energy left over to to produce the the max watts that's needed to win a stage in the tour yeah i think what the, the biggest thing really is about mindset and, and getting them prepared so you know uh, i mean i would talk to mark more about his finish line being at the top of some of the climbs rather than the, than the actual finish you know we we would talk about the finish a little bit, but you know, at the end of the day, he's world class at, at finishing a race off. Mm. And even as a young lad, um, you, you know, you could you could really see and feel that he was really world class. But actually, getting him to the end of the race in the right condition, and like you said, with the right amount of of, of uh, energy left just, just to make that that finish, you know, is is the key part. Um, I mean, the the biggest one for us when I, when I think about it is when he won Milan San Remo, you know, and and the detail we went into. About the the you know before the the Chipressa, before the Poggio, that was the chemo for him. You know his finish line was the top of the Poggio, but he had to get over the Chipressa before before that. You know, and there was a lot of work we did um, around his conditioning to to match that. Okay, so outside the physical act of sprinting and and riding your bike, what what other sort of things do you implement in in training a a pure sprinter? Is it time in the gym? Is it mental training? Is it like you said that that positioning and planning? Is it you know climbing? Is it w- watching races, uh, replays of races to kind of study techniques of others? What what do you suggest to the the people that want to improve their sprinting out there? Well, I think you know I think all of them elements definitely. Um, I, I mean, when, when you think about what they have to do, they're sort of they're really going to battle, aren't they? At that, that moment, so mentally they've got to be up for it. You know, they, they do have to take the brain out a little bit and and get ready for that moment. And I think preparing them for for that from a long way out as well is important. And talking to them about that moment and how you can get to that moment and how calm you have to be, and then when you've got to let it loose, you know you you've got to be ready to to let it loose. I think for me, for a physical point of view, I mean, for me, the track the track is the, one of the best places in the world to start, you know. And uh, you, you know, you mentioned Elia and and, and Mark, you know, both um, formidable track riders in their own right. I, I definitely believe, you know, the success Mark got in 2016's tour came off the back of the track work. You know, um, when you actually think, you know, in March he, he won the World Madison Championships. He then flicked into a road program, uh, you know, and won the won the stages at the tour. But it was all off the back of the track, uh, and then then silver medal at the Olympics, and then silver medal at the Road Worlds in in the same year. You know, so he was on and off the track all season. And by far, I think from a conditioning point of view, that was his best season. Um, so you know, I think that I think the track is is fantastic. Uh, I, I think the gym is really playing a big part now, um, and the whole sort of strength conditioning side is has moved the whole of cycling on. Um, I think riders are a lot more robust, but certainly the sprinters. And I know for Elia, um, just you know, it's only one or two things that he does, but it's it, it's, it's crucial for him, uh, and that sits then in line with his seated accelerations on the track or, or standing starts on the track as well. Interesting. So you know, you've been around a lot of amazing sprinters, a lot of amazing riders. Who would you consider the best sprinter of all time? Who is the best sprinter of all time? <laughs> yeah. You know, when you, you think about Cipollini, uh, but, you know, I do think um, 
the best sprinter of all time. You've got me out there, Bobby. I, I mean, <clears throat> obviously, I've, I followed Mark's career a lot, and you know, I think up until his illness, he was a regular winner. Um, and 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 what what really sort of for me, I think makes Mark, for me, possibly one of the best sprinters in the world is he could win off the back of a lead out or he could win on his own. And, you know, very evident, you look at his high road days where, you know, he had the best lead out train in the world um, and, and they had real speed. You know, all of them were, were world-class athletes with high speed. But then you um, you look at him when he won three stages in the Tour de France with Team Sky. You know, he was doing that pretty much off the back of, uh, you know, uh, no lead out train at all. So, you know, um, I, for me, I think Mark is... is potentially the best sprinter we've ever seen yeah i wouldn't disagree i wouldn't disagree you know we we've heard legends and stories of cipollini bending chain rings and and things like that have you ever seen a bent chain ring from somebody sprinting producing so much power <laughs> no never okay i think i think we can kind of put put that to rest unless you were absolutely twerking on it for one way shape or form <laughs> you know I, i've obviously seen and, and worked closely with the likes of sir chris hoy and these guys and no i've never seen them bending chain rings so if they can't then for sure a road sprinter could yeah i was gonna say if one person could bend a chain ring it's got to be sir chris hoy right yeah yeah you would have thought so yeah bit of a piece <laughs> so rod i know you're not the biggest numbers guy but i know you look at reports and and see like the the maximum power what is the maximum power that someone like sir chris hoy can produce as well as someone like calf so it's around about 2500 i mean pretty pretty big wattage there wow. where calf you know on a maximum sort of fresh everything maybe 1750 1800 where um you know um in a sprint maybe 1500 max would be around for, for, you know, after five or six hours of racing. Wow. Wow. And, you know, Mark has a very unique sprinting position. And there's a lot of guys out there now that are trying to emulate that, you know, that real low, basically helmet on the front wheel. Is that something that he went into the wind tunnel to work on? Or was that just his normal sprinting style from day one? Yeah, pretty much his normal sprinting style, but he was really aware of it and used that really, really well. And I think what, what you find a lot was, you know, when Mark was um, 13, 14 and 15 sort of age racing, he was one of the smallest guys. So, you know, um, as as we know, he didn't make um, some of the British cycling, like the talent team program or was struggling to make the junior worlds at the time because, you know, he was that much smaller and you put him on a rig, his pure power wasn't very good, but he knew tactically with his height um and slipstream and everything else you know he was he was as good as anybody and i think he used that very very well and and in them early years 27 onwards to 209 um you know there was a lot of gripe and a few other bigger guys who were sprinters um and it was like with kittle you know I, I think as much as marcel kittle is a fantastic sprinter yet he's a very straight line sprinter and mark was never scared of him because he knew if, as long as he was in his slipstream, he would always be able to pop around him. Um, so he used it well, but certainly now with that, I mean, Elliot has definitely trained it really well because he's one of them in-between guys. He's not mm. that small. Um, Ewan is a different kettle of fish. You know, he's got that, he is just small anyway, isn't he? But Elliot has definitely worked on it, you know, and, and he's he's um, he, he's done really well out of that, to be honest, yeah. Interesting, because even on training rides or 
I would call them just rides because we're not training for anything anymore. I see guys, you know, doing the super tuck, but I also see guys trying to emulate Mark's low sprinting positions. So it's just, it's just funny how what we see on TV, we try to emulate. But last question, Rod, and thank you so much for your time. I know you're busy. So you, you just kind of hit on a point that Mark wasn't, didn't make the cut for a lot of those selections. And we've seen him fight back from amazing odds in the past. And what does he have? 30 stage wins in the tour. I think he sits second overall with the number of wins. What is the X factor that someone like Cav has or that Cav has that made him from a very young age have the ability to say, hey, I'm still going to make it. What, What was it that gave him that extra boost that got him to where he is? Well, I, th- I think, you know, um, it was something which I saw quite early with Mark because, like I say, w- when I selected onto the academy programme um, in 2004, it wasn't so much just the actual um, anything to do with numbers or anything. It was about him as a person. Um, he'd obviously got good results, um, but he, he was really switched on, super motivated, um, and just then when just started to train with him, you know, he was really unfit at the time, but he just had this something about him that made me think, cause this guy's really committed and, and, um, he's not going to give up. <clears throat> so I think all that whole, the whole attitude, the work ethic, um, you know, people don't sort of see it in him. I think some people think he's, you know, not that he's a bit, a bit lazy or whatever, but he really isn't. He does work hard. Um, so I think this was what sets him out differently. And I think then as well, he, he's really sociable. You see him around the dinner table, around with the team. He's, he's constantly on it. And, and for him, that's working. That's him putting in the time with his teammates and, and encouraging his teammates to sort of, um, to, to, you know, to get behind him and believe in what he does, you know. Wow. Rod, thank you so much. That was a great interview. We really appreciate it. And um all the best with with you moving forward, and we'll hopefully see you out on the road soon. Cheers, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you, mate. That was fantastic. Fantastic interview there. Uh, really interesting stuff, and I, I especially um, that last question, Bobby, like the X Factor and, and how uh, Cav is just it's, – it's, it's the character, um, and it's the character that's, that's, you know, sort of shone through. So interesting there. Um, should we move on and talk about, uh, well, we've got the rest day tomorrow, so let's talk a bit about that and then uh, what the uh, what the next week of the tour's got coming up. Yeah, tomorrow is a rest day and I think there'll be quite a few guys licking their wounds after today. It's going to be <laughs> a long night of sleep tonight. They're going to be thinking about it all day tomorrow and um, rest days are tricky. Rest days are tricky. I think this year is a little bit easier because I've seen – grand tours in the past that after a rest day you go right back into it with a time trial Mm -hmm. or an uphill finish they've got a couple stages they've got another kind of sprinter day the day after the rest day and then kind of a medium mountain day before leading into the time trial so yeah that that protocol or that rhythm gets thrown off when all of a sudden you don't have anything to do that day you don't have to put your suitcase out you don't have to get up super early and it's it's kind of a a free for all. It's what the riders need individually, and you still have to have you know lunch at a certain time. You need to start the massages at a certain time. But pretty much, you have guys staying in bed and not moving all day long, 
And then you have other guys going out and doing an hour to two hours just to kind of keep the motor running. And -hmm. it all depends on the individual. But I think this year, the way the tour has been ridden, I wouldn't be surprised Mm -hmm. that there's more riders than normal that are just staying off their bikes tomorrow. What did you, uh, that's, yeah, I think that's, uh, and that would be fair enough. No one would uh, hold that against them. What did you like to do on a, on a rest day of the tour? I, I was one of the guys that went out and rode my bike. I tried to stay on that same schedule. So maybe I'd, I'd start my ride, uh, around 10 o'clock, just super easy, you know, not, nothing intense, but you know, a little, a little medium, steady medium, zone three, little sweet spot stuff just to kind of keep that that feeling. And it, for me, it was more of a mental thing. And then yeah. I would come back and I'd have a lunch and then a little bit of extra time in the afternoon to, to talk on the phone. A lot of those times our wives or girlfriends or kids would come and visit us. So, so there was always something to do. But mind you, if you're one of the GC favorites, especially if you're in the yellow jersey, the rest mm. day is anything but rest you're going to press conferences you're doing tv interviews you're trying to kind of you know keep off your feet but it's it's quite difficult so depending on who you are the rest day can either really help you or kind of hurt you a little bit interesting and uh i guess we'll see the the fruits of that like you said at least it's not uh on on wednesday it's not straight back into like a mountaintop finish or something like that really quickly after this first, well, it's been a week and a half, but uh, winners and losers of the tour. I mean, obvious winner, Alaphilippe, you know, uh, fantastic start to the, to, the, to the tour. Who else? Who else has had good and bad runs? Well, I think you have to just give total props to Team Jumbo Visma. Mm-hmm. They have had the dream start to a Tour de France. Okay, they've had a couple crashes and, you know, this and that, but man, they've rebounded and come out just smelling like roses. So for sure, that entire team is is going to enjoy this rest day. And then losers. Well, today, I think there's uh, quite a few of the GC guys uh, have now suffered a, a bit of an unfortunate uh, first week. I had Thibaut Pinot as one of the winners of the first week, but I've uh, now put him down back in the uh, in the second group with with someone who's probably not had a, a, a week that they want to remember. Yeah, I mean, I think it's more of a question of maybe not being a winner, but definitely staying out of that loser category. I mean, look at Garrett yeah. Thomas. You know, he crashes on the, the first day, and mm-hmm. then he crashes again yesterday, uh, two days ago with, with Michael Woods. And the interesting thing about that was we found out today that, you know, when we saw that beautiful Pinarello F12 snapped in half, we were all wondering, hey, what, how'd that happen? But mm. we found out today that it was actually one of the ASO follow cars that had to run over the bike to get out of the way because it happened in kind of a blind downhill sweeping corner. Really? And they just figured, you know what? Breaking this bike is better than having some rider break his face by crashing into the back of the car. So it was Shit. actually the ASO car that ran over that, that, uh, that bicycle. But yeah, it's all about righting those wrongs. Things are going to happen. But today was avoidable. And mm. certain guys were caught out. And Richie Port, um, uh, Pino, um, George Bennett, these, these guys... I'm sorry? 
Fuglesang as well, yeah. Full song, yep. These guys, oh, man, it just just goes to show you there's not a moment in this race where you can let your guard down. But yeah, it's brutal. We, we, we've got a long way to go. They're a little less than halfway through. So now it's going to be up to these guys to, to switch things the other way. I mean, if you're, if you're in that negative mindset and you hold on to it too long, that's just going to follow you around the rest of the tour. But another, another winner to go back has to be Team Ineos. They've got mm-hmm. their, the defending champion and Bernal where they want him to be. And that didn't happen just by luck. They, they had their fair share of issues, but what a well-drilled and skilled team to react to those unfortunate circumstances and make sure that they got back into the race. Yeah, exactly right. You've got to hand it to those guys. They are, they're on point all the time. Um, another one, their quick step as well, have had a really good week. Let's look uh, towards the next, you know, next uh, week and see... Are there any opportunities for some of these GC guys to to make up some lost ground? And is there an opportunity for a guy like you know Ewan uh, or Michael Matthews to 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 right their sprinting wrongs of the last week? I think the day after the rest day, that that should be another sprinter day. But mm-hmm. as we found out today, you <laughs> yeah. better keep your head on a swivel no matter what. But I think most of the GC guys are just thinking about the time trial now. Yep. Uh, the time trial isn't too long. It's 27.2 kilometers. So it's not a question of how much time you're going to gain, but how much time you're going to lose. And, and hopefully that th- those differences will be, will be small. And then after the time trial, you're moving straight into the Tourmalet uh, mm. on Saturday. And then another big mountain day on Sunday. So I think the guys are going to have to w- lick their wounds, kind of recalibrate. I would be really surprised if there was any real fireworks on thursday um on that long you know mountain day with those two category two climbs towards the end they're going to focus on the time trial and then going into the weekend and that's where we're going to see guys maybe take some chances that they wouldn't normally take because they have already lost uh, a significant amount of time yeah and i think uh come come saturday and sunday you know there'll be sufficient fatigue we'll see a bit more of a uh We'll be see, see a bit more of a distinction between the front guys um, when compared with, say, stage six. Mate, fantastic show. Thank you very much. Some exciting, uh, some, some exciting stuff to think about from today and some uh, interesting racing to, to, to think about coming up. As always, a pleasure. Thank you so much, mate. Um, to our fans, thank you. Number one fans in the world. And uh, don't forget to subscribe. SoundCloud, iTunes, um, we're on Twitter at Velonews Voices. We're on the internet, velonews.com. Go and check it out for all your cycling info. Thanks so much. Until uh, we're, we're off tomorrow, actually. So until Wednesday, Bobby. Till Wednesday. Have a great day and don't forget to put your socks on. Nice. For a very limited time, if you use coupon code TDF at RoadID.com, you'll score $5 off that one piece of gear that no cyclist should ever ride without again. That is coupon code TDF. And in case you were wondering, Road IDs range in price from a mere $20 to $35. So not only are they inexpensive, they look good, they last forever, and they just might save your life. 
So stop procrastinating. Go out and get one of these things today.